You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Turn your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 21. When we last left, the Apostle Paul wasn't looking or sounding good for him. You made mention of the fact last week that the storm clouds have begun to gather over Paul as he is making his way back to Jerusalem. It is getting dark for him as every city that he goes to, he is reminded again by the Spirit of God that bonds and afflictions await him when he gets to Jerusalem. And so Luke is portraying this dark picture for us as the apostle nears Jerusalem, the, the prophecies of the Spirit become more vivid and more intense and more dramatic. And now we have come to the point of looking at the last prophecy regarding Paul's visit to Jerusalem that is given to us in Acts chapter 21. We read the passages there, and as I was thinking, because we started this passage last week, and we looked at that first warning from the city of Tyre, where the believers were telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. And today we look at this second warning, which is in the second city, is Caesarea, where Agabus comes in, and he gives a prophecy and a prediction to the Apostle Paul, and warns Paul of what is going to happen. So last week, between the first prophecy and the second prophecy, I was starting to ask myself in my mind a question, which I ask myself questions all the time. Why is this visit to Jerusalem different than any other visit to Jerusalem for Paul? You wonder that? Why is this visit different? Why is this visit to Jerusalem attended by the prophecies and the predictions and the dire warnings that the Spirit of God has given to Paul? Why is this different than any other visit to Jerusalem? This is not the first time that Paul has suffered. This is not the first time that Paul has faced suffering in Jerusalem. In fact, Paul's first visit back to Jerusalem after he was converted brought him in a head-to-head confrontation with the leaders of the synagogue and the Jewish leaders back in Jerusalem, and they wanted to kill him. And the brethren from Jerusalem took Paul and rushed him down to Caesarea and then sailed him off away to get him out of Jerusalem to save his life. But when Paul went to Jerusalem that first time, there was no warnings. The Spirit of God didn't warn Paul about what was going to happen, at least as far as what's recorded here. And when Paul went on his first missionary journey and he went to the city of Lystra, where they stoned him and left him for dead, Paul's visit to Lystra and facing that persecution and suffering was not uh, preceded by warnings, wasn't preceded by prophecies. Why is that? When he went to Philippi, he suffered, beaten badly, severely, put in prison, spent a night there. Yet the Spirit of God didn't warn Paul before those sufferings. And then there was Thessalonica, where he went to Thessalonica. They tried to get a hold of Paul, but they couldn't. Instead, they grabbed Jason, and they brought him down and used him as a bartering tool to get Paul kicked out of Thessalonica. The Spirit of God didn't warn Paul about possible suffering in Thessalonica. And then when Paul went to Corinth and they, they brought Paul down into the courtyard there and before the city officials to try him and he was exonerated and the city officials washed their hands and acquitted Paul of all the charges. Then they took Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and they beat him. Why didn't the Spirit of God warn Paul about potential sufferings in Corinth? You know this pattern? 
And then he went to Ephesus where he faced some imprisonments and Demetrius and the whole crowd and the theater filled with the people chanting, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! He faced that, yet the Spirit of God didn't warn Paul about those sufferings. Yet here he is on his way to Jerusalem, and the Spirit of God is warning him in every city that he goes to about what he's going to face in Jerusalem. Why is this trip different? Why is this suffering different than any other point in Paul's life? Why is this one attended by the warnings? You ever come across a question you can't answer? I can only raise the question. Now, I can give you at least an idea of why I think this might be. I would suggest there are two things that are in play here. The first is this. It's this trip to Jerusalem which ends up becoming the springboard that puts Paul in Rome. This is the, this is the trip to Jerusalem where there is an eruption between Paul and the religious leaders, the Jews in Jerusalem, And because of that eruption, Paul ends up getting propelled all the way to Rome. And the book of Acts is all about how Christianity went from Jerusalem to Rome. And what Luke is going to show us is that the gospel was firmly planted in the heart of the Roman Empire because its main messenger, Paul the Apostle, was put in Rome by the Lord through the events that happened in Jerusalem. So this is a significant trip. Because everything from the time that Paul reaches Jerusalem is about to go another direction, and he's heading to Rome. Second, I think the suffering in Jerusalem is unique because of its intensity and because of its severity. I want you to look at Acts chapter 21, verse 30. Acts chapter 21, verse 30. This is after Paul is in the city of Jerusalem. It says, Then all the city was provoked, And the people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple and immediately shut the doors. And while they were seeking to kill him, look at that, they were seeking to kill him. They weren't bringing him before the city officials with a charge. They saw him in the temple, and in their minds they said one thing, we're going to kill him. So they grabbed Paul and they drug him outside. It says they were seeking to kill him. And a report came to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. And at once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came up, took hold of him, and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he began asking who he was and what he had done. But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another. And when he could not find out the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he got to the stairs, he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people kept following after them, shouting, away with him. This is different. What makes this different? Friends, do you realize if it weren't for that that Roman commander and his soldiers, the centurions, that there would be no Acts 22. They grabbed Paul and they drug him out of the temple and they shut the doors and they proceeded to beat him and their intention was to beat him to death. They weren't going to stone him with stones and drag him outside the city and leave him for dead. They were going to make sure that this man was dead. And they started flailing away on the Apostle Paul. And that lasted for however long it took for the Roman commander to hear about it, for him to get his centurions and his soldiers together and get down to the entrance of the temple and to break up this mob. And that whole time the Apostle Paul is being beaten. May I suggest that this trip to Jerusalem is different because this is what sends Paul to Rome. And second, because of the intensity and the severity of the suffering that Paul faced in Jerusalem. And we'll look more at that when we get into Acts chapter 21 further, and we continue with that. We'll kind of take a look at that. 
Friends, what I want to focus on today is this second warning that Paul gets in the city of Caesarea. We looked at verses 1 through 6 last week. We're going to look at verses 7 through verse 17 this morning. Luke says, when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemus, and after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day. So I think on the back of your bulletin insert is that map, is it not? You can follow the Apostle Paul from leaving Miletus and traveling past Kos and stopping at Kos and then going over to Patara, and then he takes a trip to Phoenicia and Tyre, goes into the city of Tyre for seven days where the Apostle Paul stayed with all, remember, there are eight other people traveling with him, Trophimus, Gaius, Aristarchus, Secundus, Timothy, Luke, among all of those men who are traveling with Paul. And they stay in Tyre for seven days where the Apostle Paul enjoys fellowship with the brethren there. They go down to the beach in verse 6 of chapter 21 and they have a word of prayer there together. And the Apostle and his companions board the ship to leave and the other brethren go home. And Paul sails a second to his last leg of the journey, which is down to Ptolemus. And there he stays with the brethren for one day. And then he sails in verse 7, or verse 8, on the next day, he came to Caesarea. And entering the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. They land at the seaport of Jerusalem. Caesarea is about 60 miles northwest of Jerusalem. That's Jerusalem's seaport. Now, here's some interesting facts about Caesarea. It was hated by the Jews. It was Jerusalem's seaport, but they hated Caesarea because it was in Caesarea where all the Roman officials lived. That was sort of the seat of Roman power in Judea. They considered it a foreign city because it was so filled with Gentiles and Romans. They didn't even like Caesarea. They hated Caesarea. Caesarea. Some people pronounce it that way. It was the seat of Roman power named after the Caesar. And so the Jews hated it because Caesarea reminded them of Roman occupation and the Romans and the Gentiles, all of whom they hated. And so they hated that city. But there was one man there who was living in Caesarea. His name was Philip. Verse 8 says, On the next day we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist who was one of the seven, and we stayed with him. Now Caesarea, Caesarea is where Philip found a home after all of his travels back in the book of Acts. Do you remember the last time we heard from Philip? You think back the last time we heard from Philip? It was quite a while ago, wasn't it? Chronologically speaking in the book of Acts, it's been 25 years since we heard from Philip. Philip comes on the scene back in Acts chapter 6 where they had this conflict over the the serving of the bread and the food to the widows. And the Hellenistic widows were being neglected, at least some people felt so. And there began this, this sort of division within the church as people were contending over this issue of who got the most food and whether it was all equal or not. And the apostles had their hands full with teaching and prayer and the Word of God and shepherding the flock. And so the apostles said to them, appoint seven men full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit, and of good reputation to take over this task so that we can devote ourselves to the the prayer and to the Word, the ministry of the Word. And so the congregation chose seven men who were full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit, and of good reputation. Philip is listed among those men. That's what he means when Luke says he was one of the seven. He was one of those seven men that the early church chose as one of the early deacons. That was 25 years ago. After that happened, there was another individual, by the way, who was listed amongst those seven people. His name was Stephen. You remember what happened with Stephen? Stephen was stoned. Stephen was persecuted. He had that debate and a big defense, and they stoned him. They buried him underneath those rocks. That was led by a young man named Saul of Tarsus, who stood by holding the coats. Philip and Stephen were both one of the seven. They were two of the seven who were chosen for that task. 
When that persecution started, Philip fled Jerusalem. Luke says the apostles didn't, but the other Christians were scattered. Philip went down and he preached Christ to the half-Jew, half-Gentile Samaritans. These sort of half-breeds, as they were considered by the apostles. The apostles would have never thought to take the gospel down there, but Philip did. Philip took the gospel to the Samaritans. Later, Peter and John came down and verified, yeah, they believed and they received the Spirit of God. And there's one church and they're all unified. And Philip went on and he preached the gospel through the cities of Samaria until the Spirit of God told Philip to go down to a road that leads to Gaza. And there Philip made the next step from half-Jew, half-Gentile convert to a fully Gentile Ethiopian eunuch. And as he's down there, he finds the Ethiopian eunuch reading from the text of Isaiah. He leads him to Christ. He baptizes him. And then Philip makes his way through the cities preaching Christ. Acts chapter 8, verse 40 says, until he came to Caesarea. And there he stopped. Acts chapter 8, verse 40, the last time we hear from Philip. Now we're 25 years later, and where's Philip? Still in Caesarea. Here was a guy who evangelized a half-Jew, half-Gentile, somebody the apostles wouldn't have touched. Then he went on and he evangelized a full Gentile, something that Peter had a hard time stomaching even in Acts chapter 10. But here you have the pioneer of Gentile conversion, which is Philip. And he has no problem. So going into Caesarea, an unclean town, a foreign city as far as the Jews are concerned, Philip is right at home, surrounded by Romans, surrounded by Gentiles. He doesn't care because that's fertile field for the gospel. So what does Philip do? He preaches Christ in Caesarea and starts a church there. He obviously was sharing Christ and witnessing in Caesarea, and he was so effective that Luke says he was known as Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. Interesting, Philip the Evangelist. Do you know that Philip is the only person in the New Testament who's called an evangelist? The only one. We read about evangelists in a generic sense. We read about Paul telling Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. But here is the only individual in all of the New Testament who is called the evangelist. You see, Philip distinguished himself from everybody else. He was known as Philip the evangelist. He was obviously so effective. He was obviously so so skilled and so used by God in the area of evangelism that he became known as Philip the Evangelist. Let me ask you a question. Do you cultivate a passion for evangelism? Do you share Christ with people? Or do you keep it to yourself? Would people know you as so-and-so the evangelist or so-and-so somebody who at least tried to evangelize other people? Philip is a good example. He was a man who distinguished himself in his zeal and his fervor and his ability to share Christ with people. And he was forever known as Philip. Not Philip the pastor. Not Philip the church planner. Not Philip the deacon. Not Philip one of the seven. But as Philip the what? The evangelist. What Philip are you talking about? Philip the evangelist. Oh, I know exactly who he is. He's the guy that lives in Caesarea who has those four daughters, unmarried daughters, who are prophetesses. Now, friends, I want you to notice the grace that is so evident in this scene. And there's a little bit of irony here that I I want you to notice before we move on. The grace of God to me is written all over this encounter, and here's why. Twenty-five years prior to this event, Saul of Tarsus hated that man with a passion that you cannot even possibly understand. And had it not been for the Damascus Road conversion... Saul of Tarsus would have taken his persecution to Philip's doorstep eventually. On his way to Damascus, but friends, it would have went to Caesarea. It would have went to anywhere the Christians were scattered to. Because the minute Christians left Jerusalem, Saul set his sights outside of Jerusalem. 
So here is the man, Saul of Tarsus, who 25 years earlier hated this man, Philip, and now he's sitting in his home enjoying sweet Christian fellowship with this man. Is that ironic? Now, put yourself in Philip's shoes. 25 years earlier, this man murdered one of your best friends. Christian brother. Powerful witness for Christ. Stephen is a man who could have been used on the same level as the Apostle Paul. Gifted expositor of the Old Testament. Great understanding of Scripture. Ability to debate and articulate, which is what got him in trouble in the synagogue. Witnessing and sharing Christ. And this man, who's sitting in your home, killed your good friend 25 years earlier. Look at the grace, friends, and the forgiveness that is evident there. He thinks nothing of inviting Paul and all of his traveling companions right into his home, knowing. And friends, if you don't think that Philip and Saul knew each other before Saul got converted and became Apostle Paul, forget it. They had to have known each other. They were in Jerusalem. They knew each other. They knew who each other were. And here they are sitting in Philip's house, enjoying sweet Christian fellowship. Friends, that is the type of forgiveness that the gospel makes possible. Somebody wronged you? Somebody done you wrong and you have a hard time forgiving them? What, do you think that nobody's ever forgiven you of a worse thing than what you're struggling to forgive somebody else over? Here's Philip sitting enjoying fellowship with a guy who killed a friend. Philip's the evangelist. He has four virgin, that's unmarried, prophetesses or daughters who are prophetesses there in the early church. I want you to look at the text there, verse 10 or verse 9. Now, this man had four daughters who were prophetesses. Now, verse 10 brings in another prophet. As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own hands and feet and said, so will the Jews bind the man who owns this belt. So verse 9 introduces prophetesses. Verse 10 introduces a prophet named Agabus. So since we're talking about prophets and prophetesses, let's kind of nail down exactly what a prophet was in the early church, or at least remind ourselves of what the role of a prophet was. It's probably easiest to understand what a prophet was and what a prophet did by contrasting them and comparing them with apostles. Now here's the way that a prophet and an apostle were similar. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That is to say that the ministry, the office, and the teaching and the function of both apostles and prophets are foundational for the church. So they are similar in that they both form the foundation for the church, which is the pillar and support of the truth. Friends, I, I, I hate to even have to say this, but it needs to be pointed out, after 2,000 years, we are no longer in the foundational period of the church. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So they're foundational in their character, in their office, and in their function. And even toward the end of the New Testament era, in the latter books of the Bible that were in the New Testament that were written, you don't see a prophets coming up. Second Timothy and First Timothy and the book of Titus, both all three written to pastors, Timothy and Titus, in churches in Crete and Ephesus, after Paul's first imprisonment at the end of the book of Acts, you're getting toward the end of the writing of the Revelation, some of the last books of the New Testament that were written, and the Apostle Paul doesn't mention prophets at all. He talks about teachers and exhorting, and encouraging, and proclaiming already revealed truth. Prophets aren't even on the table at the end of the New Testament era. They're foundational in their function and in their office. They belong to the early stages of the church. 
We're not in the early stages of the church. Well, what then did did a prophet do? Well, here's the difference between an apostle and a prophet. Apostles were more universal and broad in their ministry and their focus over many churches, over many areas. When we see prophets in the New Testament, they're prophets inside a local church. They're very localized. We had prophets in the church at Antioch when the Spirit of God said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. You had prophets in the church at Corinth. You had prophets in the church at Ephesus. You had prophets in the church at Tyre. You had prophets in the church at Caesarea. These were people who were localized in their ministry, not broad and expanded like the apostles. The second difference or distinction between an apostle and a prophet, not only were apostles broad and prophets very local, the apostles had a doctrinal, revelatory ministry. The prophets were not so much doctrinal as they were practical. Agabus' prophecy in Acts chapter 11, there's going to be a famine. Is that doctrinal or is that practical? It's practical. Not doctrinal. It has nothing to do with laying the foundation of the faith or revealing doctrine. Agabus' prophecy to Paul, the Jews are going to bind the hands and feet of the man who owns this belt. Is that doctrinal or is that practical? It's practical. You see, prophets in the early church functioned mostly in their capacity as teachers and preachers, as revealers, sorry, as proclaimers of already revealed truth. They taught the word, they proclaimed the word. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 says, When one prophesies, he speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. Those are teaching terms. Those are teaching functions. Now, occasionally a prophet addressed a specific situation in the local church, and it was a revelation of the Spirit of God. That's forming the foundation period of the church. But now, do we need prophets? What do we need prophets for, friends? We have the revelation. We have the faith once for all delivered to the saints. What we need today is not prophets to give us little words of knowledge or little clever words of insight. What we need today is people who understand this text and can preach it and teach it accurately and authoritatively as the revealed Word of God. That's what the church desperately needs. Not prophets. Prophets are the foundation upon which the church is built. They served their purpose. They performed their function. And like the apostles, they passed from the scene, having delivered to us the foundation upon which we are today building, having delivered to us the faith which has once for all been given to the saints, and having delivered to us the revelation from God. So what we have here in Acts chapter 21 is the Agabus functioning in a revelatory sense. But he was a prophet in the New Testament. Now what about prophetesses? Does that strike you as odd? Hearing about a female prophet? Not something we usually think in terms of. Now friends, listen. If you think of prophets as people who walked around in a spiritual stupor, whose minds were up in the clouds, and every once in a while they were receiving little messages from God, that's not what a prophet was, and that's not how a prophet functioned. If you think of them as sort of being other-minded, sort of out of their mind, half crazy half the time, and they're always proclaiming things that God is saying, oh, God's telling me this, and they that's not how a prophet functioned. That's not what a prophet did. They were primarily teachers. They were primarily proclaimers of the revelation. The doctrine of the apostles is what judged the work of the prophets. And it should not surprise us to find in the early church male and female prophets any more than it should surprise us to find male and female teachers in the early church. That shouldn't surprise us to find prophets there or to even find female prophets there because a female prophet would have functioned like a female teacher in the early church, teaching other people as long as they're not teaching men or exercising authority over a man like Paul 
stipulates in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and 1 Timothy chapter 2. They would have functioned in that capacity. What is unique is that Philip has four daughters who all have the same spiritual gift. That's unique. Those of you who have four kids or three kids, what are the chances that all of them would have the exact same spiritual gift? That's rare. That's genuinely rare. But here Philip had these four daughters who were all prophetesses. And just kind of on an aside, no extra charge for this, the early church fathers about 50 and 60 years after this refer to Philip's daughters as being um, people who gave them information about what happened in the early church. And there's one early church father, um, I forget who it was right off the top of my head. I read all this stuff and then sometimes it all just kind of goes out. There was one early church father who referred to have himself having been shown the grave of Philip and one of his daughters somewhere in Asia or somewhere in Judea. I guess it was in Judea. So these are people who lived and for years after Philip, his daughters were involved with ministry in the church and were sources of information for people about what went on within apostolic circles and with Philip. So four daughters who were prophetesses. Now look down at verse 12. Sorry, verse 11. We're with Agabus. Verse 11, Agabus comes down from Judea. Now, interestingly enough, it's not Philip's daughters who are the source of this revelation. It is Agabus. Agabus has been on the scene before. Do you remember Agabus? He prophesied about the famine in Judea. And here he is 22 years later, back with Paul, having been sent to Caesarea or come to Caesarea, maybe to meet Paul, maybe with this message. And Agabus comes in in verse 11 and he binds his own hands and feet with Paul's belt and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Paul, can I have your belt, please? I assume he asked for it rather than taking it off the apostle. Paul, can I have your belt? And he takes Paul's belt and he binds his own hands and his own feet and wraps them up. And this is an audio video illustration, an audio-video prophecy, so to speak. It is not only audio, it is something that they can see. It is a visual demonstration. Video is not the right word. Visual. They didn't have video back then, just in case you were wondering. It's audio-visual prophecy. Like the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, who would sometimes use these vivid pictures to demonstrate the content of their prophecy. This is what makes Agabus' prophecy different than Tyre and different than anything else that we see suggested in the book of Acts is that he is now putting a visual, in visual display what he is prophesying about. So now all of these people who are traveling with the Apostle Paul can see Agabus bound hand and feet sitting on the floor as he says, so will the Jews bind the hands and the feet of the man who owns this belt. That's Paul. And he's going to suffer. Now notice what Agabus does not say. Two things. First, Agabus does not say Paul's going to die. Keep that in your mind. Second, Agabus does not say, thus says the Spirit of God, Paul, do not go to Jerusalem. Agabus didn't say that. Agabus just warned Paul about what was going to happen. Remember last week we talked about the difference between a prediction and a prohibition? Paul's not being prohibited from going to Jerusalem. Agabus is predicting what is going to happen when Paul gets to Jerusalem. Now, maybe it was Agabus' credentials as a prophet. Maybe it was the fact that this is at least the third time since they, that they have heard this prophecy about what's going to happen to Paul. Maybe it's the audio-visual lesson that they've just been given. But Luke says that this became too much for Paul's traveling companions. 
Because he says in verse 12, Then we, along with all of the residents, when we heard this, began begging the Apostle Paul not to go to Jerusalem. (coughs) We began begging the Apostle Paul not to go to Jerusalem. I think they had heard enough. And they have stepped off the shore of Caesarea, and when you're there and the sights and sounds of home are, are right there in the city, and you're familiar with this, what do you say if you're with the Apostle Paul and you step off that boat? I would be saying, Paul... It's not too late to reconsider going to Jerusalem. I know you really want to go, but it's not necessary. We can have somebody else come and get the offering. I might have tried to talk Paul out of it. Now, I wonder if they've said anything to Paul before this. Luke seems to suggest that they hadn't. But when they get to this point, Agabus' prophecy, this becomes too much, and they start to join with the chorus. Paul, stay out of Jerusalem. They're begging him. Paul says they're weeping. They were weeping and begging him, stay out of Jerusalem. Don't go to Jerusalem. And they're begging Paul not to go. Now why is it that Aristarchus and Gaius and... Hold on a second. Aristarchus and Gaius. Have we heard those names before? Gaius and Aristarchus. Where have we heard those names before? Well, we go back to Acts chapter 19 and we find out that when Paul was in Ephesus, Demetrius got together with the craftsmen and he said... This trade of ours is about ready to fall into disrepute and Diana is going to be dethroned from her magnificence because this Paul is persuading a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. So they rushed out into the crowd and they started crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And the whole city was filled with confusion. And they grabbed Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions, and drugged them down into the theater. When they couldn't find Paul, who did they grab? Gaius and Aristarchus. Now Gaius and Aristarchus have heard the Holy Spirit say, Paul, you're going to suffer. Now I can only imagine what my response would be if I were Gaius and Aristarchus. The last time the mob wanted Paul's head, it was me they dragged down into the theater. Now I think that their concern is for the Apostle Paul because he's 55 years old, he's racked with infirmity, he has suffered, he's been beaten, he's gone through all of that. Going to Jerusalem is not a good health decision for the Apostle Paul. Their concern is obviously for him, but friends, don't negate the personal fear element of his companions. you got to know that if you're traveling with enemy, public enemy number one, as far as the Jews are concerned, if you're traveling with public enemy number one, if they can't find him, they're going to go after you. What happened in Thessalonica when they couldn't find Paul? They grabbed Jason, drug him down. What happened in Corinth when they couldn't find Paul? When they couldn't get their hands on Paul, they beat Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue. What happened in Ephesus when they couldn't get their hands on Paul? They grabbed Gaius and Aristarchus. These men know that it's unsafe just to be with Paul. So having heard what Agabus says, I think they're concerned for Paul. Friends, there's personal elements here too. They start to try and dissuade Paul from going to Jerusalem. Paul, please stay away. And you can think of all the arguments that they could have raised to keep Paul out of Jerusalem. Look what Paul's response is in verse 13. Paul answered and said, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Friends, that's vintage Paul. That's the hero of the faith. Not deterred one bit. Not dissuaded one bit. All of his traveling companions, all of them, 
are begging him not to go. The residents of Caesarea, Philip, the prophetesses, Agabus, everybody in the church there is begging Paul not to go. I'm assuming that there's no exceptions to that. And the Apostle Paul himself, standing alone, his spine strong, having this resolute determination to do what it was that the Lord had called him to do, he says, I'm, why are you weeping? Why are you breaking my heart? It doesn't matter if I die. I'm ready for death. Now, Agabus didn't say anything about death. None of the other prophecies said anything about death. They just mentioned affliction and suffering. But Paul says, you think the binding and the afflictions matter to me? I'm ready for death. Does that sound like the rantings of a lunatic madman to you? I'm ready to die for the Lord Jesus. What kind of an individual says that? The same kind of individual who could say, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly to the gospel of the grace of God. That's the type of person who says something like that. What type of a person says, I'm ready to die for Christ? The same type of person who could say, to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. And then Paul says, we prefer to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. The same type of person who said, if I'm, if I have to choose between two options, to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, or to stay on here in the flesh and to serve you, I'm hard pressed because I have this desire to depart and to be with Christ. The same type of person who could say, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. Is that a lunatic? Or is that a disciple who has counted the cost? That's a disciple who's counted the cost. That's a disciple who can understand and who understands that to live as Christ and to die is far better. If you're going to take second best, then live for Christ. If you have opportunity to get the best, depart and be with Christ. Because to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. That's not a man of maniac, that's a man of God speaking. Well, when they saw that they couldn't dissuade Paul, that is to say that they saw how stubborn he was, they saw that they couldn't change his mind, they just say, well, the will of the Lord be done. So is that a fatalistic comment? Well, well, okay, God's will be done. Kind of like we throw in at the end of our, our faithless prayers. But thy will be done. Kind of giving God an excuse. We believe this is what the Lord wants. This is what we're asking for, but your will be done. Is it a fatalism? As in, well, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. We can't change it. It's not that at all. You know what it is? They're finally joining Paul, where Paul has been all along. Paul has been in the place of saying, I am submitted to the hand of God. Nothing can come into my life except it first pass by Him. He controls it all. He allows it all. He's in charge of it all. He's sovereign. And he works through his providence to bring whatever into my life he deems best for me. And so Paul, a long time ago, had said, the will of the Lord be done. And now they have finally got to the point where they can say the same thing. We will submit ourselves in this situation to the will of the Lord and trust that it is best. And so that's what they do. They entrust it to the sovereign, providential hand of a good God and say, the will of the Lord be done. Now, before we leave this text, I want you to notice something that I think is, is kind of neat all the way through chapter 21. It's, I think, some of the darkest days in Paul's life. Uh, speaking in terms of up to this point, I don't think that it has gotten any more uh, daunting for the Apostle Paul. Here he has the Spirit of God warning him about all the suffering that he's going to endure. 
There is obviously going to be intense. It is obviously going to be severe. It is obviously something that has people everywhere who he stops, who hears these predictions and these warnings. It has them sort of trembling for him and begging him not to go. So dark times, very dim, very morbid, very somber days for the Apostle Paul. But I want you to notice the grace that is evident all the way through chapter 21. On the shores of Miletus, down by the ship with those Ephesian elders, Paul says we had to tear ourselves away from them. Why? Because they loved him so much. They were showering so much love and grace on him, they didn't want him to go. They wanted to spend time with him. They wanted to be with him. They had to tear themselves away. And then they then they land in Tyre, and they're there for seven days, and they grow so close to the brethren in the city of Tyre that when it comes time for Paul to leave, all the brethren come out to the seashore with him to prayer, to pray, and to see Paul off, the women and children as well as all of the men. That had to have been a tremendous encouragement for the Apostle Paul. And then he gets to Ptolemus and he spends a day there with the brethren and enjoys the sweet fellowship of Christian, or the sweetness of Christian fellowship with the brethren in Ptolemus. And then he gets in Caesarea and what does he find but this, this old acquaintance from long ago, Philip the Evangelist, who for all of those days shows grace and love and fellowship to the Apostle Paul and he's encouraged there. You see what's happening? Dark days, yes, but through all of it, Paul enjoys the fellowship and the communion and the time with the believers. And every step, Paul is there and people are expressing their love for him and their and their concern for him and wanting him to stay. And time after time, the Lord heaps upon grace after grace, blessing upon blessing, refreshment upon refreshment. And he enjoys all of that while he's heading to his hour, his day in Jerusalem. Friends, that is the way the Lord works. In the darkest days, with eyes of faith, you can look out and you can see how the Lord is preparing you and how the Lord has prepared you and how He has given you grace upon grace for whatever it is that He asked you to face. Because He never asks us to face something that we cannot bear. We might think that He has or think that He does at times, but He doesn't. When it's darkest, when it's the most depressing, when we feel like we're walking into our Jerusalem where nothing but affliction awaits us, if you look back, you can see how the, the Lord gives you grace upon grace, blessing upon blessing. He has been preparing the Apostle Paul to face what the Apostle Paul is about to face. Everybody else heard the warnings and they said this can be avoided. This is not necessary. The Spirit of God is trying to persuade Paul to stay away. Paul heard the warnings and he said, I know it's necessary, it cannot be avoided, and the Lord is preparing me for what I'm about to face. See the difference? The Lord prepares us for what we're about to face. Let's finish the journey. Verse 15. After these things we got ready and we started on our way up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Mnason of Cyprus, a disciple long-standing with whom, a disciple of long-standing with whom we were to lodge. Verse 17, after we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And thus ends the third missionary journey. That's Paul's third missionary journey. comes to a close. Three years' time, and traveling almost 2,800 miles, the Apostle Paul arrives back in Jerusalem after his third missionary journey. Now, my assumption, friends, is that the Apostle Paul would have gone up and he would have greeted the church in Jerusalem and he would have told them one by one the things that the Lord had done through him and through his ministry. My assumption would be that the apostle would go and greet the church 
and tell them the whole story of everything that had happened on the third missionary journey, just like he did after the second missionary journey. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. We thank you this morning for the encouragement that it offers, for the grace that you show, and for the encouragement that you give us through it. Thank you, Father, that in the darkest of days and the worst of times that you are not far from us. You are very near to us. You are there in your grace preparing us for everything that we have to face. And we thank you for the promise that you do not give us more than we can bear. You give us only that which is necessary for our refining and for our building up, for our encouragement, and for fashioning us more and more into the image of Christ. We thank you for that grace. We thank you for that truth. And we thank you for the example that the Apostle Paul has been to us in his ministry and his commitment to finish his course and his ministry which he received and to not be deterred from it no matter what the cost, no matter what the circumstances. We thank you for all of this and pray for your grace upon us today and through this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.